These are God's holy and erring and infallible words. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? These are God's holy and erring and infallible words. May he add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of those words. You may be seated. If anybody has uh, spent significant time studying the civil rights movement that took place during the middle of the 20th century, then they would have learned that it was shaped by a number of different themes. Powerful, strategic, and organized nonviolent resistance, powerful, inspirational oration or speaking and preaching, we're at the top of the list and the most notable things that you can characterize the movement by. However, there are two other powerful themes in the civil rights movement that were just as important to the advancement, uh, the advancement of people of color. And those two themes were prayer and persistence. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was unlike any other movement of its day and unlike any other movement even as we think about contemporary movements of today because it was in large part a Christian movement. The church was at the forefront of this movement and its inner workings. In fact, more than a few of the organized marches and protests and other activities started with extended periods of fasting and prayer before the activities um, began. Angry opposition was often met with people, lines of people joined hand in hand who had been fueled by prayer and fasting and then on site, hand in hand, locked, praying not only for justice, but also praying for the angry opposers. But as I mentioned, this movement was not only marked by preaching and not only marked by nonviolent resistance, and not even only marked by prayer, but it was also marked by persistence. It was marked by a commitment to just continue on in the pursuit for justice in the name of Jesus with confidence that he would lead them exactly where they needed to be if they did not grow weary and if they did not faint. In fact, persistence was such a key part of the movement that many of the songs of the movement took on that theme of persistence. Curtis Mayfield, 
one of the great R&B and soul artists of that era, filled his songs with themes of persistence. Songs like Keep On Keeping On or songs like Keep On Pushing encourage folks to not give up and to not quit. In fact, here are a few lyrics for the uninitiated in the room from Keep On Keeping On by Curtis Mayfield. We who are young should now take a stand. Don't run from the burdens of women and men. Continue to give, continue to live for what you know is right. Most of your life, most of your life can be out of sight. Withdraw from the darkness and look to the light where everyone's free. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. We just keep on keeping on. We just keep on keeping on. That's a good song, by the way. Prayer and persistence were not just themes that randomly dropped, however, in the laps of these men and women during that movement. Prayer and persistence were biblical themes. In fact, as we continue our series through the parables of Jesus, we are now this morning arriving at a parable that is talking about those two themes, prayer and persistence. This is a parable, or this story is written to encourage the saints to pray and not lose heart, or to say it another way, to pray and to keep on keeping on. Verse 1, chapter 18 says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. As we have seen throughout this parable series, it's always a good habit for us to read the context around Jesus' parables. The verses that precede the parable, the verses that follow the parable, because so often the parable is a response to something that has either been said or something that has, that has happened just a few moments ago. And I don't believe really that this parable is any different. In fact, I believe if you don't take a moment to look at what happens preceding this parable, then you're probably going to miss the primary point of this text. So some of you may be saying, well, Luke really just gave us the point of the text. So we know what Jesus means when he tells this story. Because Luke just told us that he te he's telling us this story so that we would be reminded to always pray and not lose heart. But the prayer and persistence that Luke is referring to is actually rooted in a particular place. And that place can be found in chapter 17. In chapter 17, verse 20, Scripture says that being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out. Do not follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But he, must, but he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18 is rooted in a call to remain persistent as we walk or as we wait rather on the arrival of the Son of God and the complete fulfillment and culmination of the kingdom of God. You see, Scripture in Luke chapter 17 says that Jesus is asked plainly, when is the kingdom of God coming? Which is another way of saying, when is God going to fix all of this? And he responds, Jesus responds in three ways. First, he, is, he responds by announcing that the arrival of the kingdom has ha- actually already happened in some ways. And it's still happening in other ways. And the second way that he responds is by helping us realize that the kingdom is not coming in the way that we would expect it to come. Instead, Jesus says that the kingdom is in their midst right now. Of course, he says that because he is in their midst at that very moment. Jesus is forever linked to the kingdom, meaning that Jesus' arrival is the kingdom's arrival. But the third way Jesus responds is by highlighting his return. He says there's going to come a day where I'm going to leave and return back to my father And things will go from bad to worse, rough enough to the point where you're going to be looking for me to return again, but it won't be my designated time to do so. And he says, you're going to be so eager for my return that you'll be susceptible to false teaching and false prophecy, telling you to go here or go there to find me. But don't listen to them, because when I truly truly return, it will be clear to everybody. He says that in chapter 17, verse 24, where he says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, Jesus' arrival will be quick, but it won't be secret. It will be evident to everyone, and they will know that something is happening and has happened. And so to solidify our understanding of this moment to come, He takes us back to Old Testament characters. He takes us back to Noah. He takes us back to Lot. Both were in a terrible and godless moment in history. And both had to demonstrate a trust in God and a persistence in God as the world around them continued to get worse. And while the world around them continued to swim neck deep in their pleasures and their godlessness and their injustices, the Lord showed up and moved in swift and loud judgment for all to see. And the same thing can be expected at the Lord's second coming. A world that's seemingly getting worse. A people who are pleading for the Lord to show up and deliver them. And the Lord who shows up to rescue those who have waited with patience and persistence. That is the context that we enter into this parable in Luke chapter 18. So yes, this is a parable about prayer and resilience and persistence, but it is first and foremost about us remaining prayerful and persistent and resilient in a godless and an unjust world, knowing that God will one day ultimately, finally, and permanently make all things right and openly reward us for our persistence in seeking his face till the very end. No matter how bad the world gets, in other words, the point of this parable is to stay prayerful and to keep on keeping on. 
Remember that it was even worse in Noah's day. And the Lord designed an ark to rescue the only family still standing. Remember that it was worse in Lot's day. And the Lord sent heavenly messengers to warn them of the impending doom so Lot could get his family out before fire consumed the city. However, under that big umbrella of the Lord's return and praying and holding fast as we wait on the Lord's return, there are smaller fights of prayer. The civil rights movement is a fight of prayer. Family struggles, a fight of prayer. Church struggles, a fight of prayer. Daily food on the table, a fight of prayer. The family member who refuses to come to the Lord, a fight of prayer. The struggles with our own indwelling sin, a fight of prayer. And Jesus is using the same parable to teach us about praying patiently and persistently for the big umbrella, the return of Christ, as well as all the small things underneath it. To pray patiently and persistently for his return and for everything else until he comes back. And so in verse 2 it says, He said in a city, a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. We are first introduced to the characters of Jesus' parable. It has two primary characters, a judge and a widow. One of these characters seemed to operate with great amounts of power, and the other character seems to operate with no power. One of these characters appears to depend on, doesn't uh, rather appear to depend on anyone for anything. And another, or the other, is probably depending on everyone for nearly everything. In the judge, we see immediately wickedness, corruption. Scripture tells us that he neither feared God nor did he respect man. That's a very interesting description of a judge, especially as we think of the great commandment that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 22. Do you remember the great commandment? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law or great commandment in the law? Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Everything hangs on these two commandments. Love God, love neighbor, love God, love mankind. Note that when Jesus in Matthew describes as the very, or note that Jesus describes in Matthew the very essence of righteousness. Love God, love man. And the judge is completely void of it. He doesn't love or respect God. He doesn't love or respect man. So the very essence of righteousness, the judge has none of it. He's void of all of it. He is an unrighteous judge in the clearest sense of the word. Jesus is highlighting that we should not expect any mercy from this man. He's highlighting that we should not expect any grace from this man. He is a man only interested in his own interests. He has zero regard for the interests of others. Enter the widow. The widow was easily one of the most neglected and forgotten social groups 
in all of ancient times, in all of antiquity. In Scripture, you often hear a call from God to care and serve the widow, the orphans, the immigrant, and the poor. Of course, the major reason is because God's heart is for those who are too often neglected in society, but also because very little infrastructure and very little support was available to help these people. Even in the first church, we see the neglect of the widows rearing its ugly head. In Acts chapter 6, this is a holy church, a sanctified church, a spirit-filled church. People are getting saved and people are getting delivered and people are, getting, and people are turning from their sin to the one true and holy God. And yet and still, chapter 6, verse 1, we hear this. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. As they were daily distri uh, distributing food and resources to the widows, to this social group, they were neglecting some of the widows. And so this was a societal issue that even the church was not exempt from falling prey to. This woman would have came to the court with very little to offer, very little to bargain with. She had no power to broker, no influence to negotiate. This woman was truly at the mercy of the judge and the court. And this judge stood over this woman with no compulsion at all to offer her any mercy. This is not a recipe for a happy ending. And yet, what do we find as we continue to read? Verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. We don't know the nature of the injustice. We just know that it was serious enough where this helpless widow is committed to keep coming back to this merciless judge asking for justice. I imagine she could try to go to other people and try to resolve her issue in some other way, but it appears it would be a useless effort. This judge seems to be the only one able to change her circumstances of injustice into a just outcome. And so she keeps coming back. She keeps on keeping on. She brings no additional benefit with her. She has no gifts that she offers. She has no money to offer this man. The only thing she brings with her is her desperation and her persistence. And it is this very quality that eventually moves this unrighteous, textbook unrighteous, textbook immoral, textbook unjust man towards justice. Verse 4 says, for a, while, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, because he's corrupt. No love for God, no reverence for God, no reverence or love for man. He initially refuses to budge. Woman has a good case. Woman needs mercy, but he has none to grant her. She brings nothing to the table to move him. She brings nothing to the table to entice him, to give her the justice that she so desperately needs and wants. But she keeps coming back. 
She keeps asking. She keeps making her request known because she knows there is no one else who can change her circumstance. There's no one else who can change her condition. There's no one else who can bring her justice. And that's what moves the judge. Verse 5, it says, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. <laughs> judge basically says, I'm not really impressed by her arguments. They may carry merit, but I'm not impressed by them. I'm not even really moved by her need. She may have it, but I'm not impressed by it. I don't feel really any indignation for the injustice that she is suffering. But her persistence is killing me. This phrase that he uses, that Luke uses, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming, is a phrase that can also be translated that she is giving me a black eye. It's actually a, uh, an ancient idiom that they would use that me, or actually even a current day idiom that we use where it could mean, you know, physical bruising, but it also could mean she could damage my reputation. So he possibly could be pointing to the fact that this constant badgering is just so aggravating and uh, it's annoying me. Or he could be pointing to the idea that this constant badgering of this poor widow woman in my courthouse is making me look really, really, really bad. Either way, the judge says, I have to act. I must act. Either way, this woman has her request granted, though this judge has no mercy. He is not compelled by the injustice. He is not convinced by her case. But he grants her request because she keeps coming back. She keeps on keeping on. And this is the way the Lord closes it. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus turns from the judge and he says, hey, think about this unrighteous judge and listen to what he says. That her persistence drives me to respond. Now turn your attention to a righteous judge and think about what he will say to his sons and daughters that plead day and night for him to respond. You see, we too are like the widow before an eternal God. Where, whether it is our trials in our heart indwelling sin or our trials in our homes with our spouse and children, or our trials and injustices in our city with crime and education, or a broken and neglected water system, or even trials in our nation with rising divisions and sexual immorality and greed and corruption all running rampant, we ultimately have no one who we can take these matters to who carry the power to change any of it. 
We're just like the widow. Even thinking about the big umbrella of this complete fulfillment of the kingdom that we talked about. As we witness the world growing colder and colder, there really is only one that can truly right the wrong. There really is only one that can take this old world and restore it into something new and something good and something righteous and something beautiful and something perfect. But just like the widow... And so it is to him, the judge, that we turn and make our appeal. Give me justice over my adversary, Lord. Bring justice. Bring righteousness. Bring goodness. Bring joy. Bring hope. Bring peace. But we are also like the widow in the sense that we bring nothing with us to this God. We have nothing that he doesn't already possess. We cannot add anything of worth to his already endless worth. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining. He is in need of nothing or no one. But here's where the news gets better. For us, than even the widow whose prayers were answered. The widow brings her case, or pleas were answered. The widow brings her plea to an unrighteous judge who has no respect for God or man. But we take our pleas to the ultimately righteous judge, who is far more knowledgeable of our condition than this judge, and who is far more sympathetic to our suffering than this judge. You see, there is no tear that is wasted in his presence. Every tear of the Christian will be replaced one day with unspeakable and unquenchable joy. In Christ, we have one who is sympathetic to our suffering because he too suffered. He doesn't sit in the judgment seat, sterile and unmoved by our pleas to end the injustice. He weeps with us as one who has faced the injustice himself, as one who faced the abuse, the mockery, the abandonment, and come out on the other side with all power and authority in his hands. Not only is he far more knowledgeable of our condition and far more sympathetic to our condition, but he is far more loving towards us. He spilled his own blood in order to show us that love. Our persistence is not being used in front of an unjust judge. Our persistence is being spilled in front of the most righteous judge in all of the universe. It is not spent on a selfish judge. It is spent on the most unselfish judge in all of the universe who gave his only son to the world. He will not ignore the prayers that we pray day and night. And so how should we respond in light of this truth? We should respond with prayer. Continual prayer, persistent 
prayer, resilient prayer. We must pray like we believe this truth. Romans 12 and 12 tells us to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, patient, patient in your suffering, patient in your trial, patient in your valleys, and be constant in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says, praying at all times in the spirit, praying at all times in the spirit. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 says, rejoice always. Through trial, rejoice always. Through tribulation, rejoice always. Through betrayal, rejoice always. Through mockery, rejoice always. Always through economic lows, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We respond with prayer, we keep on keeping on. In prayer. I tell you, Jesus says in verse 8, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let me wrap up by giving you three things that, that really ultimately must change in order for our prayer lives to move from sketchy to persistent, from dicey to persevering. And from quitting to keeping on. Three things. Number one, our sense of time. Our sense of time. Jesus says he will give justice to them speedily. Quickly. And we say, well, man, this doesn't feel fast, Jesus. This feels really slow. But he also says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, he says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says the Lord is not slow like we think slow is. In the grand scheme, in the grand clock of eternity, a couple of hundred years is not a long time. Sometimes we feel like he's not moving fast enough. Saints of God, you will live. Or non-believer, you will perish for eternity. And so in the scheme of eternity, the clock has not moved very much. And so in order to, to pray with the kind of confidence that we need to take to God, not just for the small umbrella issues that we talked about in terms of the things that are happening in this life, but the big umbrella issue of, Lord, come back, Maranatha, return and deliver us. In order to pray persistently in either, in either way, we have to redefine what quick looks like. We have to redefine our clocks. 
and understand that the prayers that we're praying are eternal in nature. Second thing, our genuine belief and our trust in God has to deepen. Our genuine belief and our trust in God has to deepen, meaning we must believe that our God is two things. Number one, he is infinitely more loving than any other source that we can look towards to change our circumstances. And number two, he is infinitely more powerful than any other source that we can look towards to change our circumstances. Infinitely more loving, infinitely more powerful. We pray persistently. Why? Because he is infinitely more loving than anyone else that we can take our sins to, our trials to, our injustices to. And we, and, and we keep on, we press in, we do not lose heart. Why? Because he is infinitely more powerful than anyone else we can take our sins to, our trials to, our injustices to. And if you need reassurance that he loves you and he's infinitely more loving than any other source, you don't have to look any further than the cross. Remember, as we mentioned earlier in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God demonstrates that he has a great stake in not only forgiving you of your sin but delivering you from all the pain and all the injustice that you have ever experienced in your life. He, demonstrate that he, he demonstrates that he has great stake in that by sending his son. In sending his son, he is showing us that there is a great investment of love in you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He paid the price, and so he has a great stake in seeing this done, and seeing this brought to fulfillment, and seeing this brought to completion. I know it feels slow at times. I know it feels like he's not responding. I know it feels like he's not answering. I'm telling you that you can look to the cross and you can see the investment of love that has been placed on you or in you. He's going to complete it. The Lord loves us too much to leave us where we are. To leave this world in the condition that it's in, in the shape that it's in. He will answer as we plead for justice. He will respond because he has given his very own son to see his work completed. The song says that he is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and his mercy. And when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions that are, that are eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He will answer because he loves us. But he also can answer because he is powerful enough to do so. 
He will answer because he loves us, but he can answer because he's powerful enough to answer. And if you need reassurance on the truth that God is powerful enough to answer, you don't have to look any further than the empty grave. Because when you see the empty grave, you see a God that is powerful over death, that is powerful over sickness, that is powerful over suffering, that is powerful over creation, that is powerful over injustice, that is powerful over abandonment and isolation and loneliness. He is powerful over it all, and he demonstrates that power in the resurrection. He demonstrates his love in the cross. He demonstrates his power in the resurrection. And so we can go to him confident that as we pray and as we persist and as we keep on keeping on, he will respond. Lastly, in order for our prayer life to change, our sense of time must change. In order for our prayer life to change, our, our understanding that God is powerful enough and loving enough to respond must deepen. But also, in order for our prayer life to change, our desperation for God must change. Part of the reason why our prayer lives are stale is because we have so many sources that we are reaching out to to find fulfillment. We have to stop trying to fill our lives with broken jars, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. We have to come to the throne. We have to come to the judgment seat like the widow. We have to come to the seat like the one, like the one who realized, I cannot find justice anywhere else. I cannot find justice in myself. I am incapable or incapable and unable. I cannot find justice in anyone else for they are incapable and they are unable. I can only find it at the seat of the judge. And our desperation has to raise or has to rise regardless of whether or not we feel like we're getting the answers on time. Saints of God, you're not getting the answers anywhere else but at the throne. Saints, we have to, we have to embody, embody the truth of the song that we sing. My hope is built on nothing less. In Jesus Christ, my righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. May we sing with that truth in our hearts, but saints of God, may we pray with that truth in our hearts. Let us pray.